Hello and welcome to Out Loud. I'm your host, Greg Thompson. Today on our season finale, we have Emily Joy. Emily is a poet, writer, and yoga teacher here in Nashville. She identifies as an embodied justice enthusiast, which she describes as helping others make peace with their bodies. With an extensive online following, Emily has founded the Church 2 hashtag, addressing sexual abuse in church settings. She was raised in the fundamentalist evangelical church and identifies as gay with the gender pronouns she, her, hers. As our conversation unfolded, we discussed the fluidity of understanding her faith and sexuality and not sticking to one category over time, as well as the impact of purity culture on her and on abuse in church settings in general, and the healing that has come from telling her own story to her followers. Before we dive in, I want to take a moment to say thank you to our Patreon supporters who have helped finance the production of this season. If you like what you hear, become a patron. At just $15 a month, you can get exclusive access to unedited episodes of shows just like this one. And now, let's hear from Emily Joy. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, I, I think the question I want to start off with is um, just kind of getting a sense of what um, what was your faith like growing up in your in your household, in your family? Yeah. Um, so I would say um, that I was raised as like a fundamentalist evangelical. Um, my father was a Baptist youth pastor when I was born. Um, and I was, you know, oldest of seven, homeschooled, all mm. that sort of thing. Um, and later in my childhood, we ended up like participating in a lot of different types of Protestant faith communities because my dad kind of ended up um, like starting his own nonprofit where we traveled around quite a bit. And so we, we got a decent bit of influence from almost every denomination you could think of from like Calvinist to Pentecostal to like all these t- different traditions and stuff, you know. Um, and so in some ways, like that was really positive because we we definitely got the sense that like there is not one correct way to do this hmm. was the message. But in other ways, you know, by the same token that you get like the best of all of those traditions, you also get the worst of all of those traditions as well. So, um, yeah, it was a little bit of a a cluster, but, um, but yeah, that was kind of, it was very much like an eclectic mix of fundamentalisms (laughs) growing up. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, everything was church. Everything was our Christian friends and Christian family. And, um, but then in college, so I went to Moody Bible Institute, um, for my undergrad and, uh, is that affiliated with a particular tradition? And not really. Um, it's, it's like people of all denominations go there. So like Moody Bible Institute is like very conservative, you know? Um, I mean, when I was there, women could wear pants Mm-hmm. And we could watch movies in our dorms, but like that was relatively recent, Okay, <laughs> you know, um, wow. but it's also in downtown Chicago. Oh, interesting. Okay. So like I was at this fundamentalist Bible college, but also I was in downtown Chicago yeah. and also like I went to church, um, and did a lot of my ministry hours in Boys Town, which is like the gay neighborhood there yeah. and like mm-hmm. all this stuff. So I, I was really, I was like being exposed to a lot of people that I never was exposed to before. Yeah. And so, so yeah, it was just interesting that like this place that really tried hard to be, um, I would, enclave is too nice of a word, a bunker. It was mm. like a theological and ideological bunker. <laughs> It was really trying yeah. hard to like wall us off 
from any other influence is situated right in downtown Chicago. And, and so, yeah, I think moving to a bigger city and like meeting people with different life experiences was a really important part of like getting out of that bubble. Yeah. The bunker. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Did, um, was there a moment where you, when you started to kind of question the bunker I feel like this is unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, but <laughs> yeah, no, really. I mean, that show is ridiculous, but there's some things about it that are that I'm like, I identify with this like e a little too much. Oh, you wow. know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, like, not really. I I get asked that question a lot because yeah. people find out where I come from and then they look at me and they're like, "What happened?" You yeah. Know? But yeah. like, it's not it is not so much like one particular. I mean, there's I mean, there's lots of stories I can tell of like certain things that happen that you know, caused me to question certain doctrines or whatever. But, like, ultimately it wasn't, like, one main thing Mm -hmm. or, like, one particular moment. It was just, like, a whole – it was just a whole swath of, like, little moments. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Just, like, little things slowly over time, like how you would just carve – like how the Colorado River carved out the Grand Canyon. You know, mm. it's just like you don't notice it happening. And then one day there's just like this giant chasm where <laughs> where everything was before. And you're like, oh, God, I guess I don't believe anything that I used to believe. But like you're not particularly sure how exactly that happened. Yeah. Um, And so, so, yeah, I think that's kind of what it was for me. It was just like a long, slow process and and not really even that slow. I would say that I, what whatever word you want to use for it, deconstructed is the mm, the terminology yeah, yes. that's popular now. <laughs> I I did it very efficiently. Yeah. Um. So it wasn't even all that long, but but it wasn't um. It wasn't the result of like, some some horrible personal tragedy happened, and I started to question. Uh, the idea of God as all powerful and and omnipotent or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's more just like, just paying attention. Yeah. What, um, what, what was that time? Like you said, it was kind of compressed. What, what, what was happening around then? I mean, it was like, you mean like what that process? That like deconstruction time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think I kind of concerned everyone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think I think I kind of concerned everyone. Why is that? Um, I got really used to being looked at like I had just brought home like another rescue pet. You know what I'm saying? That look mm. of like <sighs> exhaustion and like concern. Um, like showing up to like church events or and just uh, I think being most, over like, it, conversations or? with my friends. I remember one of my friends saying to me at one point, uh, "I've never heard anyone ask the questions that you're asking and not lose their faith." Oh. And I was like, okay, like, be that as it may, I have to keep asking these questions. Like, I'm not, okay, if that's what happens, that's what happens. But, like, shrug. Um, What were some of those questions for you? I don't know. I think I started with, like, here's here's our jargon, the theodicy thing. Mm. I think I started with the... Theology of suffering. Yeah, basically, like, how can God be both all-powerful and all-knowing, et cetera, right? So I think I started with that. Then I did hell. Then I did all the sex stuff. <laughs> then, then I like did the 
the the stragglers after that. But I think like it was interesting to me because I I think that the way I saw a lot of my friends going through this process, hell was like one of the last things to go mm. for them. Like they deconstructed all the other stuff and they were like still working on the hell thing. And I was just like I feel like it's a lot more efficient to do the hell thing first because it takes the pressure off. <laughs> like, How so? Like, if you are thinking that, like, it's possible that you might burn alive forever in a lake of fire for thinking the wrong thing, yeah. it's going to be really uh, hard to deconstruct the other stuff. Like, how are you even supposed to ask that kind of a question with a gun to your head? Yeah, once you, you know? get rid of that consequence, then you yeah. can start looking and at this everything is, else. This is a thing that I've been talking about. Um, I can't remember who I if this was in a personal conversation or this might have been on another podcast, but like, it's really hard to do good moral reasoning with a gun to your head. Mm. Um, mm. <laughs> and that's my feeling about hell. Like, yeah. so I was like, let me do that. And then like, once you don't believe that you're going to burn forever in a lake of fire, then, it, then you're free to be like, Hmm, maybe it's okay to not be straight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, without worrying that you're going to die for that. Yeah. Um, that which like sense. sounds really dramatic, but like, that's what they teach. So. That sounds pretty logical to me. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it's pretty well thought out. Was this was this question coming toward the end of your college years or after? Mm -hmm. or? So you, you're probably yeah, like you're in your early twenties or yeah. yeah. And, and so <clears throat> by the time that I was kind of like asking some of those questions, I was like kind of realizing a lot of stuff. What are we on swearing in the show? Oh, um, we're fine. Okay, I can say bullshit. <laughs> you could say that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, by the time that I was like about to graduate Moody, I had kind of realized like a lot of it was bullshit, but. Um, I was like, I'm really close <laughs> to being done yeah, and I want to get my degree. <laughs> yeah. So I finished the degree there. They gave me a piece of paper that says, uh, that I am certified for Christian ministry. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Yeah. I don't think this is what they had in mind. Um, <laughs> I think this still counts though. <laughs> I think it counts to me. It does. Yeah. Uh, and so that was, that was kind of in my early twenties and then, um, yeah, the next couple of years were sort of the process of the rest of that. But yeah. So what? Um, how does this this deconstruction phase? Yeah. How does that align with um, your coming out? Ha. Um, so my coming out is like a very like weird story to tell because um, I really didn't I think this is more of a personality thing than anything else but it's difficult for me to do um like emotionally abstract um like reasoning mm -hmm. uh and so so there wasn't even in all the process of of like deconstructing like beliefs about like sex and sexuality and purity culture and stuff it was really more like for other people than it was for myself. Mm -hmm. Like, like most of what had happened. I mean, I think one of the first things that happened was I did a lot of my ministry hours in Boys Town, and I knew like lots of lots of queer folks um, from that, and I just did not feel about them the way that I was being told to feel about them. Mm. Like, like I didn't think they were going to hell. <laughs> You know, yeah. but like, that's what I was being told to say and like all this kind of stuff. And so, so that there was like some cognitive dissonance there to start, but even still there, it was for other people. Right. Like I was, I was undergoing this like change because I, because of 
for the sake of other people. Yeah. And, and so <clears throat> all through, I mean, I was, I would say I was raised very much in like the heyday of like the true love waits, I kissed dating goodbye, sort of hysteria of the late nineties and early two thousands. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, well, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, that's... Joshua that's a, Harris. Okay, and that's, yeah. a, that's a book yeah, that's about a, purity culture. About purity culture and yeah. about... He was the one who went, who was not just like sex before marriage is bad, but also like dating is bad and you should only like do this like courtship thing where like you're basically betrothed as soon as you start dating and like um, if you even like get a lustful thought, it means your relationship is sinful and like all this stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like this sort of yeah. thing. It was just so much. It took... It took everything to like the absolute extreme and Joshua Harris was like like 19 or 20 or something when he wrote it so like he didn't know what the hell he was talking about but like all of these adults in Christianity were like yes let's listen to this kid let's give his books to all of our teenagers right um which all of that is a surprisingly coming from a Catholic background that's like a surprisingly Catholic take or even like more conservative than most Catholics I oh yeah I know it's pretty no it was hardcore It was a whole separate thing. And yeah, so, yeah. And so collectively, what we have started, and when I say we, I mean the people who are talking about this now in public, um, collectively we sort of refer to this as purity culture now, yeah. which is the religious corollary of rape culture, essentially. Mm. Um, and so, so even through the whole deconstruction of purity culture, um, I think the thing is, In the way I was raised, and also in those books, in all of in all of those books and all those workshops and all those you know things that the, the purity industrial complex of the time, um, it almost felt like it wasn't even like it was ex- my experience of it was that it wasn't even like it was explicitly homophobic. I think their thought was like if we don't bring it up, it won't exist. So like if you look at all the purity culture books from that time, I have them all on my shelf mm-hmm. at home. Um, almost never is uh, same-sex attraction even considered. Sometimes there's, like, an appendix in the back of, like, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, here's some conversion therapy books, right? But, like, it, it's almost like they were just, like, let's not talk about it. And yeah. if we don't talk about it, it won't put the yeah. idea yeah. into their heads. Yeah. Right? Because um, that's the only reason people are gay, right, is because they read a book. <laughs> that's it. It's, that's it. And so... <laughs> So it was not a thing that I had ever considered for myself. Yeah. Yeah. And I had never taken that. I had never like sat back and taken the time to like ask myself that question really with any sort of like gravity. And, and so I really thought that I was like a pretty straight person until I was like 25. And at that point I had already gotten married to a man. Oh, wow. Um, And so, and that whole time I really was just like, oh, I'm straight. Like. And, and even at that time, I had I had fully deconstructed my, my beliefs about sexuality at that time. So, like, you know, I wasn't a virgin when I got married and, like, all this kind of stuff. And I was, like, fully affirming of all of my friends that were in, like, same-sex relationships. And, like, yeah. it was it was all for other people, you yeah. know? And, and I think it took me a while for a lot of reasons. I think one of it is because, like, it had... I think it had to be okay for other people before it was okay for me, you know? Yeah. Like, I think yeah. I had to make peace with that. In a, it outside of myself. Well, it's less consequential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, then to be able to make peace with it inside of myself. I think some of it is because 
Um, like I said, I don't do like the abstract thing. And so I had never had any sort of experience that would tell me otherwise. I dated men all through high school and all through college and all this sort of thing. So like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, there was that. And I just, yeah, I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why. Um, and some of it's personality and some of it's trauma and, you know, it's just a, I think we've all got a cocktail of reasons why we're in the closet, you know? Um, yeah. And so, and I was in the closet to myself (laughs) for a really long time. Yeah. Um, and so initially when I came out, I came out after being married, um, for about a year. Okay. Um, and initially when I came out, I came out as bisexual, um, because I was like, well, I'm married to a man, but also I'm attracted to women. So I'm bi. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think, um... It's interesting because there's sort of this, there's this very, like, false and, and like, biphobic notion that bisexuality is, like, a stopping point on the way to either homosexuality or heterosexuality. Yes, I right? heard that. Um, and I don't think that's true. But I do think that um, stories like mine are more likely to happen in contexts where people are coming out of, like, religious trauma. Um, yeah. yeah. And sort of things like this, because because if I had come out as gay initially, first of all, I wouldn't have done that because I, I didn't think that at the time. But, like, say that I had, you know, that would have meant that everything about my life was over, yeah. you know, in a second. It's so consequ- consequential. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really hard. So I don't know. I think I think that happens more in, in contexts like mine than it does in, like, the general population. Mm. And I think it's, like, a thing that needs to be talked about because I think people are so – my experience is that – people are so rightly incensed at like the biphobia that happens in society that we're not really able to have the conversation about like, okay, but what if you did identify as bisexual and then you don't anymore? Um, and so, so that was a really hard thing to parse out. And I identified as bisexual for, you know, almost probably, probably two, two and a half years after, after I came out. Um, and, and I like, you talked about it on the internet. You know what I'm saying? Like I did a, I did like, um, do you know, uh, Sue Ann Shaw? No. I love Sue Ann. She's so great. Sue Ann and I did a workshop, um, on bisexuality at one of the gay Christian network conferences and like all this kind of stuff. You know okay. what I'm saying? So yeah. this was like stuff I was just like You're working because I'm, I'm sort of <laughs> my, my tack has always been to sort of like learn by teaching. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't yeah. remember a whole lot of what you read or listen to, but you remember like a lot of what you teach. <laughs> so, Yes. So my feeling is like, I've always tried to like learn by teaching. That's maybe not the best thing. Um, I maybe have, I'm, that's maybe too much, but, um, well, I, I was a teaching assistant this past semester and one of my, um, supervisors and kind of advisors throughout yeah. said, you know, it's very common or, or that she would ask the question, what faith claims are you making through your teaching style? Mm-hmm. What actually comes out of your mouth and what, and is that affirming what you actually believe? Yeah. Um, because I, how we teach and what we actually think are two sometimes can be two different. Yeah, things. and so I, I think I was like working out. I was like working out my my stuff, you know, by doing that. Yeah. Um, and eventually, I came to the place where, like, through, like, over time, like, as I went to therapy, as we went to therapy together, as like our life situation changed, I came to realize that I was not bisexual. I 
was just not really attracted to men in any meaningful way. Mm. And so I'm still, for me, like right now, I'm still trying on labels. I like, I've thrown gay out there. I'm working on trying out lesbian maybe sometime soon. Like, I don't, I don't know that I have a real good label for it just yet. Yeah. And it feels, it feels like weird to not have, um, like a thing to categorize yourself with. That's like very, um, certain because i think that's like in in like these coming out narratives we're sort of encouraged to like pick something and use a category and i'm like i don't know sometimes i don't know what i think about stuff until i hear it come out of my mouth yeah and then i'm like oh wait that doesn't sound right or like maybe it does you know and so so coming to realize i was gay was like a real problem because of being married to a man um and i was just like shit like i my whole my whole life is gonna have to change you know because like it's not it's not fair for either of us to live like that you know and so so i'm currently in the process of getting divorced um and that is really sad but also it feels like the, the most correct decision that I could have possibly made. And I feel like a thousand pounds lighter. Mm. Like I, it just, it's really sad, but it, I'm also like a hundred percent confident that it's the right thing to do. Um, cause like I really struggle with the Bible a lot, but like I take the words of Jesus super seriously when he said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Mm. And I'm like, the fruit of this decision has been like so much like lightness and happiness and freedom and liberation. And it's like, it sucks, but it, it just is, it just is the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and so that's that, but that's all very recent. That's all very fresh. That's happened in the last six months. Oh, wow. Um, so, so yeah, it's a Mm. lot. (laughs) It's, uh, it's always a lot, but Yeah. yeah, I, I mean, I think. I remember feel, feeling that lightness when I was coming out to myself. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's painful to have there are going to be parties who are hurt. Yeah. Because they are used to you identifying a different way. Yeah. But I but I do think it's so it's doing them a favor that you're being honest with who you are. And I can't not be. And that's the thing. I'm like, you know what? Like I've been crucified plenty of times. <laughs> yeah. Do it again. I don't care. Like yeah. I have to live my life and I don't mm-hmm. want to have to lie about it. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's been, so that's been recent, but that's, I don't know. It's just, it's teaching me a lot about myself <laughs> and about life and about, sexuality and about yeah I'm just I'm I'm in like a pressure cooker of learning and personal growth right now yeah and it's been really rich and hard but really rich that's I think it's a really healthy way of looking at it though because um again there are these parallels between um between sexuality and and faith Mm -hmm. and I that has been um something I've been trying to be more open to with my own faith is it was kind of my my Lenten practice I was probably reading a little too much Richard Rohr (laughs) um, but he was talking about um, looking at your your faith as um, order 
you like you're born into a faith or you you begin your life in some faith and there's order mm -hmm. and then you start asking questions you start deconstructing and there's disorder mm -hmm. and then eventually as you start to kind of put the pieces back together there's reorder and it might be something entirely new it might be another faith yeah. tradition it might be something that you're and that process yourself. forever and ever until you die pretty much that's i think that's my my intention <laughs> so over exhausting. Lent was I'm to so tired yeah <laughs> I well, just my, want to nap for a hundred years. <laughs> my intention over Lent was to rest in the disorder because I think it's so tempting to just be like, give me a label, put yeah. something on it. And um, I think, yeah, I think what you're saying is, is, is kind of tracks the same way with this idea of just you're, you're, you're going to have some disorder. You're going to be constantly learning and that's always going to kind of change how you understand mm -hmm. something in the world, something about yourself. Um, yeah. That's yeah. what differentiates us from rocks. Correct. Is the ability to intake new information. <laughs> Correct. And adjust your behavior accordingly. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, but it's good to ask the questions yeah. and, and to, and to start finding out more. I think, I, I don't think it's a, um, it can be a scary endeavor. Yeah. Like you would be in a totally different place if you hadn't started asking questions. Yeah. No, know? I'm thankful for it. I'm yeah. thankful for all of it. So. Yeah. Um, circling back to, uh, purity culture, yes. but that's something that you've been, I think, more vocal about mm -hmm. lately yeah. with the hashtag IKDG stories and, and all of that. Um, can, what's, what, um, what are you trying to do in that space right now as far as helping people kind of, um, climb out of purity culture? My main work with regards to like faith and sexuality lately has been with the church too hashtag. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that purity culture is a big part of that in a way that a lot of people don't really want to talk about. So I started that hashtag with my friend Hannah. Um, and a lot of people who are very committed to purity culture have wanted to kind of glom onto the hashtag and like use it to promote their like kind of age old Gnostic traditionalist view of sexuality. Um, and, and it's been really unfortunate because I think that, you know, church two is obviously, um, a, a spinoff of me too, mm -hmm. the me too movement started by, um, Tarana Burke and then popularized last fall or two falls ago. Wow. God, it's been so long. Um, it feels on Twitter and all that. that. Yeah. It feels yeah. like it was just <laughs> the other day, but it's a long time ago. Um, but yeah, a couple, couple falls ago started to go viral on Twitter, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, um, so we started church to, because like the thought was that sometimes these conversations like deserve a little bit of a separate space because there are things about them that are unique to church. Like, so for example, um, it's, it's one thing for something bad to happen to you, um, but it's another thing for something bad to happen to you and then for everybody around you to tell you that God's fine with it, right, mm -hmm. is like another layer of trauma. Or another way of saying that is like you don't see Harvey Weinstein justifying his actions with a chapter and verse from the Bible. Yeah. Um, but you see lots of pastors doing that and lots of people doing that on behalf of pastors. And so so it's, it's, a, it's another layer that needs to be added to the conversation, which Absolutely. is why we started it. Yeah. But people want to, the people that have kind of glommed onto it have wanted to make it just about women, right? Just about how um, 
men need to treat women better, which is true. That's not <laughs> that's not, not true. Mm-hmm. But but they want to make it just about that, right? Or they want to say, like, uh, we need to do better at training churches about how to engage with law enforcement and uh, have reporting policies. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's probably also true. But, like, it's it's reactionary. Mm-hmm. To only deal with it like that, right? If you only deal with it in terms of like men need to treat women better and churches need to report more efficiently, you're you're going to be um, you're going to be only dealing with the situations as they arise. You're never going to stop the situations from arising in the first place. And that's kind of what I'm interested in doing is like that cultural change, right? The systemic level of like, okay, yes, we do need to be better about reporting, and we do need to you know have these like practical things in place but like ultimately like why is this happening yeah like why is there an epidemic and like we need to be honest about that and here's the thing is that people don't want to be honest about the fact that it is because of purity culture it is because Mm. of this like sex negative religious rape culture that says that like uh like female and non-binary bodies are dangerous and are subservient to men's that um, sexuality is scary and bad and you should never do it. And if you do have anything sexual happen, you should feel extreme shame and like all this stuff. And it's like this shame based, uh, this shame based sexual culture upholds sex, sex abuse and sexualized Mm -hmm. violence. You know, that you can't have the epidemic that we have right now without that. And so it's just, it's, it's, that's been my main thing is just waking up every morning and shouting into the void that purity culture has everything to do with church too. And if you're not interested in deconstructing purity culture, you are putting a bandaid on a bullet wound. Yeah. Um, and literally I just say that every day and nobody listens. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but it is my job and I will do it. No, I mean, that's, it's fascinating because I hadn't heard it put that way before. But that's the same conversation. Those are the same dynamics that I'm noticing in the Catholic Church right now mm-hmm. with the priest yeah. sex abuse scandal. And there's, um, yeah, there's it's it's totally been reactionary for the most part. Mm-hmm. And there isn't this proactive kind of admission of of what's in the culture. Anything in the Catholic Church, it's you've got some of that kind of purity culture in a way, like mm-hmm. maybe purity culture light, maybe not quite as yeah um, heavy handed. But um, my ex-husband is Catholic, so okay. Um, so, so you you we definitely talk have, about that and okay. like his experience with that growing up. Okay, yeah. So you you understand. So and then and then on top of that, you've also got the fact that we don't allow women clergy in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and that um, yeah. Well, and the yeah. Catholic the Catholic Church scandal has been the Protestants' favorite thing for years because even though we all knew it was happening in Protestant churches too, they were able to like point the finger and be like, "See, it's those godless Catholics. It's because they only believe in salvation by works. That's why, because they're heretics and they believe in the Pope and they worship Mary. And that's what happens when you don't have doctrinal purity." Blah blah blah. Right? And it's just like <laughs> now, y'all, it's coming out that you have as bad, if not worse, of a problem. Yeah. And honestly, it might be worse. Well, I think you, I think you said it best a few moments ago. But it, it comes back to this this shaming culture, yeah. regardless of the politics that your church may have or my church mm-hmm. may have. But when we when we just cloud shame around any expression of sexuality. Oh, yeah. Well, if you think about it, I mean, just just it's hard for me, and I don't I don't think that I'm like a particularly um, I don't think that I'm like 
hyper-intelligent or anything, you know what I'm saying? Um, but it's really hard for me to look at the situation and not see that if you have a big group of young people, particularly young women, but a big group of young people who have extreme shame about sexuality, who have little to no sex ed because mm -hmm. sex education is really frowned upon in these communities. Let's not talk about the entire lack of sex education that I got. I didn't know my own body parts till I was in college. Um, if you have a group of young people, particularly young women, who have extreme shame about all expressions of sexuality, who have little to no sex ed, um, and are very a part of this culture that, this is unrelated to sex, but are very a part of this culture that kind of worships pastors and leaders, this sort of like fundamentalist celebrity culture mm -hmm. where people are sort of propped up. Um, women are told that they are to be submissive to men, especially pastors, especially husbands. They're told that they are basically the gatekeeper of male sexuality because men have this like ravenous sex drive and they have to stop them and blah, blah, blah. Right. If this is the this is you have a big group of people who are all carrying this. Is this not like a flashing vacancy sign to predators? Saying mm. here, here is where you can get a bunch of victims and we probably won't even report you to the police. Right, right. No wonder that's all happening in churches. You might as well put up a sign. Like, <laughs> Damn. I think, I think predators are attracted to these situations, to these communities yeah. for that reason, because they know that that's where they can get lots of victims and they probably won't get in trouble. Yeah. That's why, like, the background check thing is ridiculous to me. I mean, everybody should do it, but it's like, I can count on one hand the number of people I know who experienced sexualized violence in a church context, and that person who perpetrated it had a, had a record. Yeah. They don't have records. Yeah. Because they don't get reported. They just get shuffled around from place to place, and that's how they keep praying. And so that's, it's like that sort of thing. You know, it's like, so this took a whole turn towards that, but I just, all I'm saying about that is that purity culture plays a huge part yeah. In this, right? Yeah. And and I will scream that until I'm blue in the face. <laughs> um you've shared I think your own story on online um under the church two hashtag. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um has that elicited stories uh from other people? And um are you creating space for people to kind of find um ways to vocalize yeah. The abuse that they've experienced is that is that I think coming so. out of that? Yeah, I mean, honest. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? Like, that's the whole reason it's called Me Too. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's because you say you say a thing, um, and then somebody else is like Me Too, and so, of course we we called it Church Too just because um, you know that was we figured people would understand what it meant. And it was not a lot of characters and that sort of thing, but it's, it's succinct. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Um, but, like, that's kind of, the, it's that Me Too moment, you know, of, like, this thing of, like, oh, my God, that happened to me. And that's why we even first started doing it. Because when, when I say we, we, like, created the hashtag, I mean we accidentally created the hashtag. We did not do it on purpose. I had no intention of, like, launching a thing yeah. when I told my story on Twitter. Um, it was, like, uh, there's been other things that have happened since then around this where people had, like, um, like, websites and the thunderclap campaigns and all this stuff. And I had nothing. I was like, absolutely not planning on doing a thing, but I just was like angry 
and had been sitting on, you know, my story, um, which anybody who is interested um, can listen to uh, any other podcast I've ever been on or go on the, read any of the articles or go on my Twitter. Um, yeah, it was but, on your Twitter page. Yeah, it's on my Twitter. Yeah, we'll um, link that in the show notes. Essentially, uh, I was kind of groomed for a romantic relationship by an older youth leader in my non-denominational evangelical megachurch. And, uh, and I had just been sitting on that story for, you know, like 10 years. And so I finally just came out and told it. Um, and, and immediately I started getting responses back of like, oh, something like this happened to me too. Like, um, and then, um, one of his other victims came forward and was like, yes, this happened to me by the same guy and like all this kind of stuff. Right. And so this, 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 in the couple of hours after I tweeted this, this groundswell started to happen. And that's when Hannah and I were talking about, and she was like, I think that people like clearly want to have this conversation. So like we should facilitate that in some way. Perfect. Yeah. Um, cause it's happening. It's happening currently. Whether <laughs> so, you like it or not. Yeah, yeah. So, so we should, we should make it, um, you know, succinct. And, and so that's when we came up with the hashtag and tweeted it out. And so, so definitely it's been way organic and way grassroots. It has not, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get a website out there. Um, and I'm trying to write a book, um, in the next year. Awesome. Um, I have a, I have a proposal out there. Um, hello, any book agents listening to this, but, um, <laughs> but so, so I, the, I, I'm trying to make it a little bit more official. Yeah. Um, but so far it's been very grassroots. And, and so, so I think a lot of people have found community in this, but it's all been, it's all been very like ad, ad hoc sort of a little bit, just sure. like on the internet, um, on the hashtag and people making connections. And, um, some have gotten connected with journalists, um, and, you know, gotten their story out there further and that sort of thing. And there's yeah. been a lot of really good journalism around it too. A lot of really shitty journalism, um, <laughs> but a lot of really good journalism about it too. Um, yeah. and and like personally, I've made a lot of friends, you know, on, on the hashtag um, and and met people that I wouldn't have met otherwise and, you know, that sort of thing. And so, so yeah, I think, and, the, and that's the thing too, is like a lot of times there's no, um, there's not a lot of legal recourse that can happen for a lot of these things. Sometimes yeah. there is, sometimes there's still the opportunity for legal recourse, but a lot of times there's not. And so, so... I think what a lot of people, myself included, are searching for is like, um, a, like a more expansive definition of what constitutes justice in these situations, right? Yeah. Because like, I'm never, I, I'm not even a hundred percent sure anything illegal happened in my story. Maybe I don't know enough about the, I don't know enough about like the definition of certain legalese terms. But like, yeah. even if it did, like, I don't think I'd have any way to like bring like legal action against the person who took advantage of me. But like, do you know what happens when you Google his name? Do your tweets show up? <laughs> Some of them do. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing is, what, what's justice? Yeah. You know, and I think every, I think every person who has experienced sexualized violence gets to determine that for themselves. Yeah. Because for some people it is going through the whole legal rigmarole, you know, and for other people it's not. Um, and so, yeah. I think that's the question at the heart of the Me Too movement, too. Yeah. It's, it's what I keep kind of coming back to is, like, how much of this dirty laundry, whatever, do we need to air publicly? And how much of it needs to, you know, how much of it is public justice and mm -hmm. how much of it is individual forgiveness, possibly reconciliation but yeah 
just and I think that's why it's like it's so important for every person to be able to like determine that for themselves because I've talked to some people who have zero interest in talking about their story publicly yeah. because for them that would just reopen old wounds that would that would feel to them like airing dirty laundry for them yeah. that's not okay but for other people that is the most healing thing in the in the world that they can possibly do for me it was uh, yeah it so sounds like it. so yeah it's just one of those things where it's like it's so it's so individual. I've also, I, a while back I listened to, this is a complete sidebar, but I, a while back I listened to the, this really interesting bit on NPR where they were talking about, like, why the Me Too movement took off in the age of Trump. Mm-hmm. Because we all feel so powerless to deal with the fact that there's a sexual abuser in the White House, that we're dealing with the sexual abusers in our lives, <laughs> and we're dealing with it loudly and publicly. And I was like... Psychologically, that makes sense. That makes sense. I'm sure there's lots of other reasons why it took off, but I kind of agree, you know? Um, And so, yeah, that's another another, uh, aspect of the question of what what does it mean to have justice in these situations? Yeah, yeah. So many elements. You've got... You've got the po- the politics of today. You've yeah. got the growth of social sh- of mm-hmm. social media in just the past decade. We have the ability to and, do that for the first yeah. time. And this is the first time we've ever been able to. Yeah, and then throw in you know the sexual revolution and yeah, it's a perfect storm. Yeah, what um what about sharing your story online has been healing for you? Oh man, um, I think that I I really gaslit myself about it for a lot of years. Mm. Um, because, because I have a story that is, um, by some accounts, what Roxanne Gay would call like, not that bad. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Where we kind of like, we kind of, um, downplay what happened to us, uh, because it wasn't as bad as somebody else. You know what I'm saying? So like, um, in, in my case, um, I was like groomed for this romantic relationship, like, the the sexual ma- manipulation was primarily verbal. Yeah. Um. Because you said it all kind of it was an exchange. Yeah. Via email. Yeah, we had or... like we would like talk online for hours every day and like all this kind of stuff, but yeah. like and then see each other at church and it's kind of like, you know how you can boil a frog, if you just turn the water up one degree at a time, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the basic concept behind grooming. So mm-hmm. like one second everything's fine and then like the before you know you're like alone in the back seat of a car together when you really shouldn't be and like all this kind of stuff you know yeah. this sort of thing where it's like over time you slowly turn the heat up um and that's how that's how grooming works that's how abuse works um and so that's what was happening to me and then it was all found out before he could assault me okay um and so i really and he did go on to later do that to other people he turned out to be like a like a serial predator um i know of at this point at least four or five other women um Uh, and who who knows how many else i don't know um but uh but because of that i really gaslit myself about it for a long time being like okay well i didn't get raped so it wasn't that bad so it must be survivor's guilt yeah and like you know like uh so why, why do I have all these like trauma reactions? Like why, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I think that definitely, um, my situation did for sure suffer from the thing where like the bad thing happens and then your community makes it worse. Like I was grounded, um, and punished (laughs) because my parents didn't understand that like a 16 year old can't consent to a romantic relationship with a man in his thirties who is like her spiritual advisor. Um, you know, like that sort of thing. So 
So, so there was definitely, like, that added trauma to it, the family trauma, the religious trauma, on top of, like, the actual, like, the, the sexual awakening occurring in the context of an abusive relationship, you know? Um, and so, so there was all of that, but, but because it wasn't this horror story that you read about, I just was like, okay, well, whatever. Like, I don't need to talk about it. It's not that bad. And I, it was amazing to me. I had, and I had just kind of like excused it for a long time. I excused my parents' behavior about it. Um, and when I, when I came out and like told the story, people reacted like, with horror, people reacted like it was really bad. And I was like, oh, like, it is really bad. Like, having that outside perspective to bounce back at me and go, oh, like, you didn't make this up. This was really bad. That was totally uncalled for mm-hmm. and totally out of line. And you don't have to, like, downplay it. Like, it was really bad. And you're still carrying trauma from it. And it's okay to still carry trauma from it because it was bad, you know? Um, so to me, that's been, like, that was hard at first. Yeah. But, like, at this point, having been talking about it for, like, a year and a half now, it's, like it's become a really healing thing yeah. to be able to do. And also I just think that was a really shitty thing that happened to me. <laughs> and I sat on it for 10 years and then I told my story and it empowered thousands of other people to tell their story. That's beautiful. Like it changed, it changed things for real. And that is like the most amazing and also really freaking humbling thing that I can imagine. And it's made me feel, it's made me a lot braver. I would say I've gotten braver in the last year and a half because, because I see what happens. So I'm like significantly less afraid. So I'm going to like, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I mean, that's, that's the power of storytelling yeah. um, and, and the power of just owning your, your truth and, and, and telling other people and yeah. And kind of that bravery almost begets more bravery. Like you get, mm-hmm. you just get stronger. It's, it's um, contagious. Yeah. Yeah. And then you share it with other people. Yeah. That's awesome. Ugh. Um, so you're also, um, a poet mm-hmm. and a writer and mm-hmm. a yoga teacher. Um, yes. so what, um, what do those look like as far as like spiritual practices for mm. you and, and continuing to find, um, healing and I think the courage that it takes to do the work that you're doing? Yeah. Um, yoga is a very spiritual practice for me. Yeah. I would say that's been really helpful, especially like I'm a person that like tends to want to like, um, be a like ephemeral mist floating above my body and like leave it behind, you know what I'm saying? Like deliver me from this body of death. And so like yoga has really helped me to like be in my body yeah. and to like love my body and appreciate my body. And that is that that is the most spiritual practice, mm. you know, because it's like I'm I think moving away from um, like Gnostic ideas of sexuality um, necessitates that we come to terms with the fact that like our brain is inside of our body. <laughs> And, and it's so, not like, controlling, like, it's not, it isn't the entire body. No, no, no. The brain is just part of the body and <laughs> right. it's inside of the body. It's not separate from the body. And so, like, our our bodies are what we have. This is, this is it. Yep. <laughs> so, so, so for me, unlearning purity culture has been that too. So it's been really helpful to have a practice that's embodied. 
to have a spiritual practice that's also an embodied practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, for me, that keeps me really, that keeps me really grounded. Um, and so I, I mean, I take yoga, but I also teach yoga, which I really enjoy. Um, and so, yeah, that has been a huge part of, yeah. <laughs> of spiritual health. And I think that, um, my relationship with church and Christianity is always very fraught. Um, I also work at a church, so LOL. That, um, <laughs> do you still, do you still go to church on Sundays? I, uh, well, I'm, I'm Episcopalian, so like 60% of Sundays. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, you know. Probably better than most. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I go to church and then I work at a different church. Uh, and, but I like, but spiritual practices in terms of like prayer and like scripture reading and all that stuff is stuff that I'm like really, that I really struggle with right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have found that like yoga and meditation, that practice like fills the same it feels it scratches the same itch. Yeah. Um, I, you know? I I completely know that's what it does for me too. And for me like movement is prayer. Mm. Like I like I feel like I'm praying when I'm when I'm going through those motions. You know, it feels yeah. it's liturgical. Right. When I'm teaching yoga, I'm doing a liturgy. I have it, I have it memorized in my head. I have my script. It's, you know, you know, like it, I feel like I'm breaking bread at an altar when I'm teaching yoga. Mm -hmm. It feels, it feels like that's what I'm doing. I don't know if that's sacrilegious, but like, I don't think so. But to me, it's very liturgical. It's very prayerful. And so, so that's kind of where I'm finding that right now. Um, And I go to church for other reasons. I go to church for community. I go to church uh, to spite people who, <laughs> who, who don't think I'm, sometimes I just, I, sometimes I just show up to church out of spite. That's um, not... Like I'm still here. You know, sometimes those are the best. When I go to church and I don't want to be there, yeah. those are the days where I get slapped over the head with like something and yeah. I'm like, oh, I need it to be. Yeah. No. <laughs> so that's. And I mean, like, I, I like my fair. priest. So like, yeah. sometimes I go to church just to like hear Kira's sermon, you know, like it's yeah. just one of those things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I go to church for other reasons. Um, but, but my, like my sustaining spiritual practice has really been kind of outside the four walls of church for a long time. Yeah. It, it's interesting kind of as we're talking, you, you kind of have, have like this, this digital life mm-hmm. and, and then your like local physical life here in town. Like I know. how does it, um, does you know, talking about yoga as like liturgy, mm-hmm. does it feel like in leading a yoga class that like you're getting that kind of like physical plant local leadership that you would in a church if that was what you wanted or yeah, what worked out for of. you? I mean, right. I always, I just feel like I'm always going to be in ministry in some way and yeah. I don't know what that is, but like, but to me, I'm always going to be like adjacent to those spaces. And right now, right now that's what it is, but it may be in the future I move back towards a more like organized religious space for that sort of thing. I'm open to it. Yeah. Um, I'm working out my issues, but, um, but yeah, no. And it's interesting that like divide cause like, um, so I work at a church, but like, um, I haven't like super duper advertised that. <laughs> um, 
And on Instagram, you know how you can have like your close friends uh, yes. list? Yes. So I only do this on my close friends list, which is like 20 or 30 people. But I, I have this hashtag uh, called Secret Church Life. And I'll, like, put pictures on there from my job of me, like, <laughs> feeding bulletins through the folder, <laughs> through, like, the folding yes. machine. <laughs> Hashtag secret church life. Because <laughs> I think that, like, I don't know, it's just so wild to me. I have people in my inbox, like, every week telling me that, like, I'm not a Christian and I'm, like, a heathen and I'm leading people down to destruction and I'm, mm. like, gone astray. And I'm, like, yeah, this is my, like... This is my long con. This is my, like, ultimate plot is I'm going to, like, destroy the church from within by making the bulletins better. By making better. the bulletins. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> you know? Like, I just, it's so, so, it's funny to me. But, like, also at my church, I, like, I, at the church where I work, uh, I don't, I don't, my priest at the church that I go follows me on Twitter. So we're friends. She knows who I am. But, um, but at my work, I, like, haven't talked to them about, like, my online life. <laughs> Do they know about your online? I don't think so. Oh, interesting. <laughs> no. So it's like a double secret. Like, it's you're like, like a double, double agent. Yeah. Like some I'm people like, on one side know about uh-huh. things and some people on the other side don't. No. That's, that's hilarious. Been fun. I just like my little boundaries. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just going to sit here and make bulletins. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> what's kind of next for you? What's on the horizon? What's on the edge of what you're working on at the moment? Oof. I've, I'm one of those people who just like enjoys constant like learning, um, and stuff. And I, and I, I feel really strongly about, um, knowledge and education as a remedy for purity culture, because, um, purity culture basically can only thrive in ignorance. And so, um, to that end, my, my friend, my other friend, not the same Hannah that I started church to with, but our other friend, Hannah, um, she and I have been writing a column for the sex ed website Scarlet Teen called Impurity Culture, which was like sort of a tongue in cheek thing that we just like started a Twitter account for because we were going to do like sex ed tweets. Yeah. Um, but then the people at Scarlet Teen reached out to us and were like, hey, we have been looking for someone to do nice. um, spiritually sensitive sex ed column. Um, and so now we're writing for Scarlet Teen occasionally. But um, that is like, has been like a sort of little like, Side side thing, um, but I'm really interested in uh, doing, like, more sex education because um, I think, yeah, for me it's a thing that I really care about, and I think my experience of purity culture was was one of such ignorance and such, like, forced ignorance of where, like, you weren't allowed to have the knowledge, you know? Um, and I want to do, I want to do sex ed, but I want to do sex ed for, like, churches like I want to do sex ed for religious people and like like Christian schools and colleges and that sort of thing um I don't like I I get I don't I get bored if I preach to the choir too much um so I I want to be in a space where I'm like challenging people um you've got plenty of spaces around here yeah mm -hmm. (laughs) um so i'm gonna be looking into that this year actually um is possibly some certifications in um a couple of different programs that i'm looking into but um but yeah i really i care about that a lot and i think it's a thing that i want to do it's a thing that i want to do more of if i ever write a second book after church too it'll probably be a sex ed book um for that reason um but but yeah that's kind of what is next for me Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for all the incredible, inspiring work that you're doing. Thank you. And thanks for being on the show. Thanks. 
A big thanks to Emily for coming on the show today. You can find her on Instagram at emilyjoypoetry and at her website, emilyjoypoetry.com. You can find those linked in the show notes, as well as other resources like the Twitter story we discussed that helped launch the Church2 hashtag. Out Loud is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, and is hosted and edited by me, Greg Thompson. This concludes our second season of the show, and we will be bringing more stories to you from Nashville in the near future. You can stay in touch with updates at outloudstories.com and on Facebook and Instagram by following Out Loud Stories or by joining our email list. And you can help support the show by contributing monthly to our Patreon page, which gets you access to exclusive, unedited episodes of the show. Those will continue to drop into the Patreon feed while the show is on hiatus. Don't worry one bit. Just visit patreon.com slash outloudstories. And as always, please share the show with someone as a way to start a conversation. Thank you for listening. Go in peace.